Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hi, and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. We have finally made it back. Thank you, Blog Talk, for getting whatever was going on fixed. Hopefully it'll stay fixed through the second hour. Today is Tuesday, December the 26th, 2023, and we hope that you've had a good Holy Day weekend. And uh, Dr. Tim is away with family, and he left me a list of shows to play. So for today, it is Laura McGowan from April 13th of this year. So enjoy the show. And Michael and I will be back live as long as Blog Talk hangs on. So welcome. Laura McGowan had a long and successful career in public relations and the madman-esque drinking culture of advertising. After getting sober, she quickly became recognized as a fresh voice in recovery. Beloved for her soulful and irreverent writing online and in print, she now leads sold-out retreats and courses, teaching people how to say yes to a bigger life. She lives outside Boston, Massachusetts with her daughter. Laura writes an award-winning blog and hosted the iTunes Top 100 Home podcast. She has been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, WebMD, Psychology Today, The Today Show, The Doctors, and more. Laura has an MBA from Babson College and spent 15 years in advertising, managing million-dollar accounts for Fortune 100 companies before transitioning to writing and teaching. She's the founder of several online programs for sobriety and personal development, The Luckiest Club, a sobriety support community, and she teaches workshops and retreats all over the U.S. Her first book, We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life, released January of 2020 and was an instant bestseller. Her most recent book is titled Push Off From Here, Nine Essential Truths to Get You Through Sobriety and Everything Else. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. It's great to see you, Laura. Thanks for joining me again. I'm thrilled with um, having been through both reading and listening to your your new book, um, Push Off From Here, and I'm thrilled to have a discussion with you about the two books and uh, what brought you into them and where where they've launched you. Sure. So the first, my first book, We Are the Luckiest, uh, is really focused on my story. It's a memoir of 
my journey through alcohol addiction and sobriety. And I, the, so if I, that published in 2020, but if I go back a bit, <clears throat> I started writing about this topic as I was getting sober and in my first years of sobriety. And one of the things that I did uh, was I would often answer letters from people uh, who wrote to me about various things around their sobriety or addiction. And I got this letter from a woman whose sister was struggling with alcohol, and she was going through all the things that people go through uh, when someone you love is struggling with addiction. She was angry and happy. Uh, you know, mad and frustrated, but also loves her sister and, you know, kind of walking on eggshells, didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do. And she asked me, what would you have wanted to hear? And so I wrote her this letter in response and said all these, all this stuff. But then at the end, I said, if you, um, you know, if this is too much, just give her this list. And I made a list of the things that I most needed to hear in that time when I was trying to get sober and kind of still needed to hear. I was a couple of years sober when I wrote this. And there are these nine points, um, and I'll say what they are in a minute. But that letter was written in 2016. I published it on my blog. Um, and I, when I went to write We Are the Luckiest in 2020 or published in 2020, I knew that I wanted those nine things to be the epigraph to the book, so the little part in the beginning of the book before anything starts. And what was funny was people really gravitated to those nine things. Like there's this whole book, you know, that follows, right. but people really love, love those nine things. And what they are is, one, it's not your fault. Two, it is your responsibility Three, it's unfair that this is your thing. Four, this is your thing. Five, this will never stop being your thing until you face it. Six, you can't do it alone. Seven, only you can do it. Eight, I love you. And nine, I will never stop reminding you of these things. So that book goes out. Like I said, it's a story. It's my story. It's really about my experience. And it was published in January of 2020, and then, of course, the pandemic hit a couple of months later, and I was in the middle of book tour, and um, everything got canceled, and I'm sitting there at home one day, and I see that my local AA chapter is, has shut down, and they're not going to be having meetings, and I'd never seen that happen before, you know, ever not for any storm or holiday or like it just it was it was a moment where I thought oh my god you know what are what's going to happen to all these people that need support and I felt pretty solid in my sobriety at that point and I had built enough of a community and a following online and everything that I just thought okay I'll host some free meetings not AA meetings just I'll create a structure of my own and host some free meetings for this week, <laughs> thinking that that would, you know, the, the pandemic was going to be very short-lived. Um, and so I started hosting these meetings, and 200, 300, 400 people started to show up. And I, I had them that one week, and then I was like, all right, we'll just keep going because I'm around. <laughs> I don't have anything to do. Right. And I mean, I had a lot to do, I was, you know, but I didn't have anything to do. We're all homebound. And so 
uh, I, I hosted those meetings for six weeks, and it felt like in that time there was just something really magical happening in those spaces. Um, a lot of let the me, people. Let me, let me just interrupt you and say, there's a real gift in you to be able to recognize that magic happening. Mm. And and don't lose that. Watch for that. These are rare. You know, in my experience. It's rare to have that kind of chemistry come together in a group. Mm-hmm. And when it happens, you know, not that it should be the, the be-all and end-all, but it is a wonderful thing when people recognize it and begin to nurture it. Yeah, thank you. And, and I think that's true. I can look back now and see that this that was like this very unique specific alchemy happening at that time. And I'm glad I said yes to it. You know, I'm glad I I jumped on it. So I was going to stop doing the meetings, though, because I had things to do. And my daughter was home and and I had, you know, other work. I mean, I, I had other things to do. So I, and it was a lot. I was hosting two meetings a day, one in the morning and one at night. And, but I got a lot of people saying, please just keep these going. This is the first community I've ever had. This is the first time I've ever experienced a meeting. I'm really relying on these. I'm loving them. And and so within about, I made a, a quick decision, talked to like a couple people, my brother, and uh, just sort of sat with it. And I thought, you know what? I'll just, I, I'm going to give it a shot. I hired some people to lead meetings. Not So it wasn't just me. I set up, I created a a name for this community called the luckiest club based on my book and just ran with it really set it up in about um you know about a week and uh started a company or started a community rather and it's now still existing and thriving and we have over 40 meetings a week in this amazing community and app and all these other offerings so but what happened in there, so when I decided to create the Luckiest Club, I was like, okay, these nine things are going to be like our backbone. This right. is what we're going to say at the end of every meeting. And they're just, they're they're kind of our mission in a way. Um, I tweaked the last two points. So number eight was I love you, and I made it say we love you, or no, you are loved, sorry. You are loved. And then number nine was, I will never stop reminding you of these things. And I made it we. So it's now this collective statement. And people just, you know, they, 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 they stuck and people really, um, it resonated with them. It resonated with them. Yeah. And they're so simple. Um, but people have started to, you know, they just, they just clicked and, over time, in, in running the Luckiest Club and, and in the community, it became very clear that while they understood these nine things, they're pretty straightforward and intuitive, it was also like, okay, but what does it really mean? Like, tell me more. How do you take responsibility? Why is it helpful to hear that it's unfair that this is my thing? Like, what's beyond that? Yeah, how do you do uh, responsibility without blame and guilt, et cetera? Exactly. So um, it wasn't. Good. I wasn't going to write this next book that wasn't going to be what I wrote, but um, it became clear that that was something that was, that needed to be written. And so the, that's what Push Off From Here is. That's the, the book that just came out is 
uh, an exploration of those nine points and a sort of prescriptive practical guide to how you might apply them to your life. And that's how it came to be. So it's this interesting thread that started in 2016 and just, you know, I kind of followed the breadcrumbs and um, ended up with now these, these two books out in the world. And so my mind goes to, can you tell us how you define your thing? Because I have this mm-hmm. thing in my head. I don't want to say it until after you've talked. But what what do you mean by this is your thing? Right. So things are what I think of it as anything that pushes you up against the edge of yourself and what you know and how you've coped in the past and and really just pushes you outside of what you're capable of coping with based on on your sort of present skill set, I guess. It's pain. Things are things that cause you pain and and, and suffering and struggle that you have to change. You have to go through some kind of transformation or change in order to get through them. Um, Another more simple way of putting it is your things are things that kind of own you. They take away your freedom um, and your attention in a way that is destructive to you. Yeah, and as as I come away from it after reading your two books a couple times, I, I think of my thing as anything that blocks me from living fully in the moment, joyfully and creatively. If it's, well, that's if, a much more eloquent description of things than I than I did. I should have a better. <laughs> I've been writing about it for so long, but yes, you're right. That's that's a great because way to put that's it. that's one of the things that I get from your two books is that it, it, while your struggle with an addictive process is you know part of, of of both books and a big part of your life. It's not your whole life, and it's not mm-hmm. where you're focusing your energy to be able to have healthy, vibrant life and relationships and have joy in your life. And the way I come to think about my thing is anything that is like a roadblock to me being there, present in the moment, being able to work through what's difficult and still embrace gratitude for life itself and having joy in my life. Yeah, I think that's very well said. When you were talking, I thought of this line that I heard in yoga teacher training a long time ago that was the blocks are the path. And I would say that that things are the blocks. They're not a problem. They're actually just part of life, right? But we do, they they are, the blocks are the path. They're not, um, they're there to help us grow and figure out who we are and create ultimately more joy and meaning in our lives. But man, they suck. <laughs> you know, no they're they're uh addiction is one thing, but can be death, illness, divorce, eating disorders, anything that, you know, that like you said robs us of our presence and or has me running away from it rather than mm-hmm. realizing that 
it's not possible for something to actually be bigger than me and be there with it until my strength builds to the point where I can move through it with ease and grace. Right. If I run from it, I don't build that strength. I don't have the experience of being bigger than whatever is in front of me. And and that's one of the things that I have taken so beautifully, I think, that you write about in these books, is that the point is to build a joyful, creative, expansive life. Yeah. And anything that wants to get in the way of me doing that is one of my things. Yes. And that, you know, I think one of the the reason I called it a thing, like, to me, when I went to get sober, it felt like addiction was this very singular <clears throat> sort of special thing that people go through. And that if you, that it, it would that be something that you just had to live with forever and kind of like center your life around right. and think about it all the time and worry about it all the time and have it sort of define your identity. And the reason I, I called it a thing is because there's it's just this benign sort of term. Like there's so many different things that people face. Addiction is not that unique. It's not unique at all. It's not special. It's not even, I don't think it's that interesting. It just so happened to be this one of the things that I faced. And the idea is that I think that's important to say because we definitely other people who go through addiction. Right. And, and that's why, one of the things I love about the way you write about this and you've worked through it, thought about it, struggled with it, is that in a culture where the alcohol is basically the only drug you have to explain why you're not using it, right? The only other, mm -hmm. it's the only destructive, addictive substance you have to explain why you're not going to use it. Mm -hmm. it's a, that's a pretty sick culture. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a pretty distorted mindset. Mm -hmm. And to build a life in a culture that I, I, I love this line from Tuesdays with Maury where um, Mitch Album, who wrote the book, was talking to Maury who was dying of ALS and he said, Maury, I don't get it. You can't carry a tune to save your life. And when you get on the dance floor, it looks like somebody's constantly jabbing you with a cattle prod. And yet you sing at the top of your lungs and you dance like nobody's watching. How do you do it? And Maury said, well, Mitch, if you live in a culture that doesn't help you feel good about yourself, you need to create your own culture. It's mm -hmm. great. And that's what I get from reading your books about, listen, if I want to go into a place where everybody's drinking and everybody's status is how much they can drink and how many shots they can do and still function. And if I want to go into that culture and I have a problem with, you know, the way my body responds to alcohol where my judgment derails me and I, and I drink to the point where I'm going to kill myself, I need to create a culture or a place I can go and people I can surround myself with who aren't doing that as their primary entertainment or their primary right. distraction from life. Right. And the thing about your books is to say, this can happen. Totally. This is a very real possibility. There are all kinds of intelligent, creative, loving, productive people who don't drink. 
They either yeah. don't drink all the time or they don't drink at all. Yeah. And you can and build absolutely. a life for yourself in those environments and, and within those communities. And if they aren't right there in your face, take, you know, Maury's advice, create your own community, which is what you've done with TLC. Yeah. Yeah, and even a step further than that, too, is, like, I can exist in in the other spaces, too, where people are prizing this this thing, uh, alcohol, and where it's they're obsessed about it, and, and you know, it, and it's very normalized, and not feel other. Like, I don't care anymore. Right, but you do that after you've created this yes. strength in your core yes. about your value as a person, and... And the only way you do that is you define for yourself your value that's other than what the the culture or the conditioning that you've been brought up in would define you as deficient if you can't drink with your buddies, et cetera. Yes, which I feel like that extra step, that second part is where a lot of recovery stops short. It's like you're you're – focused on the no instead of the yes. And so much about, as you just said, that you're other. Yeah. You're not just another noodle in the soup. There's something really weird about you, right? Yes. You're damaged and broken, so you better find other damaged and broken people to hang out with and stay away from those other healthy people or those yeah. other stronger people. Right, those normal way, people. Right, that's just not the way it works. No. I never bought that. I don't know why. I just... I thought that I never bought that it was weird to me but but I, I get why people do you know it's everywhere well and so. if it's and if it, if that's the core value or belief system or mode of operating from the community that you find to help you pull back from the edge so you're not going to kill yourself with your addiction that's a part of the community then in order to belong there you buy into that yeah. That we are other and that we are weaker. And that, and right. I get it. And it, it, it's, as you might have said a couple of times, it's a useful first step or two, but it's not our goal. Our goal is not to define ourselves as so damaged and broken. Our goal is to shore up those weak spots and build on our strengths and recognize our value. Yeah. And, and you know, it's so funny because I still, still see it. Like I saw this interview with, Melanie Lansky is an, an amazing actress, and her husband, they were on the Drew Barrymore show. This was, like, really recently, like two weeks ago. And he was talking about how his – a little bit about his path, and he um, – you could see in his body language. Like, he's he is someone who struggled with alcohol and got sober, but you could see in his body language that he – there was still so much shame there. And – he was very apologetic and very, you know, I don't like, there's a difference between humility and like apologizing for yourself. And I, I identified that in the interview. It's like, God, you don't have to carry it around like that anymore, man. You know, so. Well, and that thing about humility is the way I grew up and the way it was introduced to me that being humble is putting yourself below other people. Mm. But what I understand from the ancient uh, origins of the word from the ancient Aramaic, et cetera, is that it's more about being able to see that we're all the same. 
and to look for and be able to identify the highest and best in another person. And then despite what's coming out of them toward you, cooperate only with their highest and best. Mm -hmm. Engage them as though they are the same level of value. They are another person of a being of brilliance and light. And yeah, they might have temporarily forgotten or yet to discover their brilliance, but I can still relate to them as who they really are. Yeah, I love that. That's great. It just puts us all, so this thing about humility is to recognize that the only significant difference between any of us at any time is the degree to which we live from the realization that we're all the same. What? He said the only difference is that we're all the same. Yes, right? Mm -hmm. That's the only difference. Some of us think we flip-flop between thinking we're better and worse than others, and some of us are able to recognize we're just another noodle in the soup. Yep. That's right. That's right. And and that you there's so much power in that. You know, it's very enticing to want to think that you're one up, but or one down because it takes or the one down. off, right? Yes. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm yeah. so unworthless. Who am I to do this? Yes. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, there's a there's a trap that is really really enticing, but it's lovely to get out of it. So lovely. Yeah, everything's possible there. When you don't have to take yourself so seriously and, and so personally, that's, I think, the real freedom. Is I found being caught in an addiction or anything that, I guess, causes you a lot of shame is that you're constantly thinking about yourself. Not in a, not in a good way. But it's like everything, uh, I talk about this and push off from here. I got it from you, actually, like this, how useless blame is. And this idea that, you know, I am to blame for everything in all cases and that, you know, anything bad that happens is my fault. Um, is such a, it's such a strange, strangely egotistical way of viewing the world um, and even though we're doing it to sort of punish ourselves or like keep ourselves one down it's so the 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 um paradox is that it's this grandiose idea you know right. it it you have to have a kind of a split inside yourself to be able to say that there's a part of me that knows what a schmuck I am, part of me that knows better than the part of me that keeps acting in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm both, you know, the the villain and the hero. It's it's there's a craziness in the way our thought patterns work or that we're conditioned into that, you know, David Bohm has called sustained incoherence, mm-hmm. and and you know. Krishnamurti would talk of as just the absolute trap of thought. Yeah. Right? So um, I think my way into a problem, and then I think I better think a way out of it. And it's mm-hmm. not going to happen because the actual process of thought is flawed. Here I'm going to judge myself as bad and wrong. Well, who's judging who? How can mm-hmm. I be, you know, these two separate people, one of them knows so much better than the other, and... I beat myself up mercilessly for every misstep or faux pas or whatever, and it's just a trap. It's me just spinning my wheels. I'm not going anywhere. Nope. Nope. 
yeah, that is the trap. That's one of the things I think that has been the gift of being in recovery is that I just, I think of, of myself a lot less. Not that it, in the sense of like just the, t- the amount of time and energy I spend thinking about obsessing about what I've done wrong in myself and, and, oh, they must be mad at me and this is about me and, and like that exhausting, you know, thought process. Many of us live in those, what in the psychological realm is actually an actual, you know, pathological thing at an extreme and it's called ideas of reference. I think everything's about me. I walk into a room and I think that the conversation went into a lull and then I think, oh, it's because I walked in. It's if when I make it too much about me, I'm losing the perspective that everybody I meet started out as a sperm and an egg and had their own life challenges and is going to end up in dust, et cetera, that we're all the same. Yeah, and everyone's living in their own, you know, the amount, it was such a relief to, like, learn that people were not thinking about me. Like, they, they they are doing the same thing I am, which is worrying about themselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Guy, Guy Finley has a, a thing where he says the the vast majority of your mental and emotional pain, psychological pain, is the bitter fruit of a comparative life. Mm. Wow. Right, and that's that that ties into this thing about it. Every time you compare yourself to somebody else and you come out on the bottom, what you're doing is comparing their highlight reel to your outtakes. Yep. And vice versa. When you come out on top. You're just selectively picking the best bits of you and looking at somebody else and their outtakes. And and again, the, the question that we try to help people ask is, what good does that do you? How does that move you forward in your life, in growth, in productivity, in joy? How does that do that? No, it doesn't. I think it's so so often it's just unconscious, it's subconscious. You're just that's where you're living. Well, it's what we've been. Con- con- trained in to do, conditioned to, to do, because, you know, we were born into this realm. It's like um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I saw him say something like, you know, we say we try to make sense of things and that we put a high value on making sense of things. But pay attention to how limiting that is. That means I'm going to make everything fit into what I can sense with my five senses, and he says, the universe is out here trying to talk to us beyond our five senses. What does he mean by that? X-rays, infrared, ultraviolet, all these things are there, We, but we can't register them with our senses. Well, there's a lot more going on here yeah. than just the physical. Yeah. And so if all we're doing is measuring any person by what their physical output is, we're in a trap. We're in yeah. this very, very narrow, myopic view of life. Yeah, we're missing 95% of it. <laughs> and, for instance, you would never have noticed the magic going on with the Luckiest Club mm-hmm. if all you looked at was stats. Right, right. Oh, well, there's only 100 people here. And exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Um, I've had a few of those mo- moment, many actually many in sobriety. That was that has been one of the absolute gifts is just being present to what was already are, always happening around me. I was just too, you know, mired in my addiction to be, to be able to see it. 
Right. And another way to talk about it is that almost all of us, at least in the Western culture, have an addiction, a couple of addictions we're not even aware of. One of them is the addiction to the familiar. Mm. Another one is the addiction to judge. And whenever I'm judging, I'm not going to see as many of these, like you called it an alchemy, right? This, This wonderful chemistry in this group of people. If I'm judging, it's good, it's bad, it's right, it's wrong. Whenever life unfolds in a way that I don't want it to and I start to judge, that's bad. I'm crimping my view down to this very narrow view. I'm getting tight and tense as though I might need to protect myself from something. And my field of vision is so narrow, I miss Mm -hmm. all of the ways that there might be a little miracle happening here, a wonderful synchronicity happening there, a wonderful opportunity expanding right here. So along with your sobriety, as you, let's say, we uh, we decide to um, get sober from judging, mm-hmm. we will also expand our ability to see these alchemies and miracles yeah. exponentially. Yeah, that's... That's exactly it. I mean, I, I think, you know, just the alcohol example, I remember so so many days I just had to focus on, like, how sick I felt and just to try to get to the other side of that. You know, I can't even imagine what I missed on those days. Cause, but, but we're all, like, if you look at it as judging, you know, judging is like a trance you get into. Like, it's this very seductive trance. And if all you can think about is, how resentful you are about this thing that happened or what, you know, whatever the judgments are never ending. It's like you're literally at your eyes are closed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, we come by it naturally. We've developed into it over, you know, hundreds and hundreds of generations, basically focused on the physical above all else. And not every culture did that. Yeah. Right. There were other cultures that had more focus on other energies and intuition and prayer and meditation and being in alignment with nature and so but our Western culture has basically have developed to be focusing just on the physical and we've been conditioned from the language we learn all the way through all of our schooling to be in judgment. So if you want to take your health and your well-being and the joy in your life to the next level, try to go, try to abstain from judgment. Yeah. And get sober from judgment. It's hard, man. It's a trick because it's been so thoroughly conditioned and so much of our mind that that helps us, our brain that helps us, is autopilot. Yeah. It's a really useful thing, right? I wouldn't want to have to learn how to drive a car every time I get in one. (laughs) Right. So there's a part of the mind where it's useful, but another area of my life where that judgment and that autopilot and what Guy Finley would call the mechanical level of mind is counterproductive Yep. at best. At best. Yep. Totally agree. Yeah. So then a lot of times people ask, well, so if I'm not judging, what am I supposed to do? Just accept everything and just be a doormat and... No, the the option that some people like Rilke, uh, Rainier Maria Rilke will, will say is we, le- we need to learn to live in the question without yeah. demanding an answer 
Because in the moment a mind can ask a really loving, powerful question, that mind isn't even capable of comprehending the answer. That mind has to grow and expand. And in Rilke's words, perhaps if we stay in that questioning state, learning to live there, we might grow along someday into an answer. Yes. Yeah, so instead the, of judging, this is bad, this shouldn't happen, is if I start saying, oh, well, this has happened, I wonder how this is going to work out. I leave yeah. myself in an open space rather than, damn it, this shouldn't be happening. Yeah, that's a huge thing I talk about and push off from here was just, is this that um, how self-denigration is just like our default in Western culture and shame, we just we just beat the crap out of ourselves and how we think that's actually what's going to make us change, you know, more pressure, more discipline, more self-beating. And that sobriety was actually the first time that I realized like that isn't going to work. That That's not working here. I can't punish. I can't hate myself into getting sober. I tried. Yeah, yeah, and uh, lots of know. people will help you try that. <laughs> they will. Yeah, because oh, yeah. they're, they're doing it to themselves, and, and well, that's and what they've Well, and they're doing it taught. to you, too, right? Yes. Especially that's the that's the sort of where addiction is unique because there are many people who t- will tell you what a piece of crap you are, you know, right. being. And what we know about how these human mind, body, energy systems work is anybody who tells you you're a piece of crap doesn't feel good about themselves. Whatever comes out of that person's mouth is always going to tell you more about what's going on inside that person than it's ever going to tell you about you or anything around them. Yeah, that's so, it's so hard to take that in though. Like that's a, that's like a PhD level lesson, I think for, for a lot of people, including myself, you know, because we, well, listen, um, being able to live there all day, every day would be PhD level. That's like, but please don't cheat yourself out of the ability to play with it and grow in your ability to do it moment to moment from situation to situation. Right. Because it's as easy as recognizing that's an option and then opening up to, well, what if? Right. What if what what that's true? That thing is not about me. Right. What if when I, when I attack somebody in, anger or an insult, it means there's a pain or fear or sadness in me. And what if I take a breath and turn in here and look at that? Mm-hmm. And it's this process of growing into recognizing it, if it happens to be true for you. But the only way you can do that is if you move yourself more and more into observation in the moment and away from belief and judgment. Yeah. I did this really, like, one of the big turning points I had when I was getting sober was I, I, you know, had a night, a morning where I woke up after drinking again, not wanting to again, and doing it again. And, you know, I woke up with those same self-beating thoughts running through my head. Like, I can't, you know, I can't believe you're in this spot again. You're, this, you suck. This, you know, what is it going to take, you piece of crap? And thinking, um, I remembered this, was actually from Eat, Pray, Love. Like, it just came to me, Liz Gilbert sitting in an ashram in India uh, going through an episode of, like, extreme depression and anxiety and writing to herself, 
in the voice of what she understood as God and just saying, like, look, I'm here. I, I'm stronger than this depression, and I am not going anywhere. And, like, what do you need? I'm not going to leave you. And I remembered that in that moment, and I wrote that down to myself. Like, okay, I'm not leaving. Like, you're, I'm here. So you drink again. So what, what happened? What was that about? And it was such a totally, I, I remember looking down at my feet. It was summertime, and, like, my feet were tan, and I had blue nail polish on. And I thought, and thinking, like, your feet are really pretty. And thinking like you're it's, it, you're beautiful. It's okay. And so in that moment, it was this like loving curiosity. Like instead of going, I can't believe that happened again, and you did that again. Like just going, so what happened? Right. It made Excellent. you know it made all the difference. Yeah, childlike curiosity, as you say, loving curiosity. Hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I realize we're we're pushing up against one of my hard time limits, so I want to come back to you and ask you, if you just take a breath and center, um, what's a, a an area that maybe we haven't touched on yet that you want to talk about or um, something that we've already discussed that you want to go back and highlight? I think that the thing that I would love to – to just touch on is there's a part there's chapter three in the book is about uh in push off from here is is it's unfair that this is your thing and writing this chapter was such a journey for me because i didn't really know what else to say about that like i knew that it was something that i needed to hear and that is very helpful for other people to hear but i didn't know exactly why and like what is underneath that. And what I realized in writing it and sort of digging is we don't actually expect things to be fair. Like we don't really think that life is fair. Um, So it wasn't about that. It was about having someone witness and acknowledge and validate your sorrow. And that's what it was about. We we need, I think it, I read Tara Brock, when I was writing this, I read Tara Brock's Radical Acceptance. And she writes about the the need for someone to witness our sorrow and acknowledge that it's real. And when it came to addiction, and there's other areas where this applies, but I realized we have all of these sort of unstated rules about grief in our culture, about who's allowed to feel it and at what level and for how long. And when it comes to addiction, we do not think that people who struggle with addiction deserve to feel grief about it. They've caused the harm. They've caused the pain. They need to atone. <laughs> they don't deserve grief. And so 
what happened when I allowed myself to hear, like, this is just unfair, this sucks, was just that acknowledgement that, yeah, you are going through something really painful and really hard. And I see you, and I care about your suffering. And you're still okay, and you're still beautiful, and I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, and how... I just, that was such a, like, ex- exploration for me um, to to see what that was really about. And, it, and that's because so many people, when you go through something difficult and, and specific, whether it's parenthood or a divorce or your mother dies or whatever it is, you have to find people who are going to, understand why this hurts and in the specific way that it hurts. So this speaks to the community that of people you might find. When I tried to go to my immediate family or my, you know, ex-husband or my friends even about what I, I was experiencing when I was trying to get sober, it was so, I was so frustrated and disappointed because they could not acknowledge that. Right. But when I found people who could and who got it and who would say, yes, this does suck and yes, I, I see your pain and it's real, and uh, I care about it. That changed everything. Yeah, like a warm bath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, like coming home. Yeah, we have such a fundamental need to be seen. Yeah, and most of us that have that so deeply didn't have it uh, in our families of origins, even if they were, you know, not real abusive families, but whatever. I I interviewed a psychiatrist who's self-reported on the autism spectrum, and she's brilliant. And she talks about it as uh, children are either a laptop or a rock. What does that mean? Well, she said a rock you know, it still functions as a rock. If you bounce it off the wall, if you drop it in a lake, if you throw it in in a snowbank, it still functions as a rock. It can be a projectile or a doorstop. But a laptop, you bounce that off a wall or drop it in a lake or throw it in a snowbank, it doesn't function at all. Mm. And you don't have to be raised in a highly abusive environment to come out not getting what you feel you need. And if there's a mismatch between your personality and your style and your physical sensitivities and and what your parents and your friends are able to provide in terms of connection and validation and support, then you can grow up feeling really, really weak in your core, and then you really need that outside validation more. You really yeah. need that sense of being heard. Yeah. My hunch, though, is at this stage in your life with your development, your sense of urgency to feel heard is nowhere near as strong as it was when you were getting sober. No, not at all. Because now you've internalized it. Now you've got that core strength in here. Yeah. And that does, you know, I I want one of the, the reasons that I write these books and just, like, like to do the work I do is because, that's available to everybody. You know, it's not always going to feel that way. I had such a 
I can see that's why I was writing so much and talking so much. I, I could not just say enough about what, what was happening with me at that, you know, for years. And then, and now I don't feel, yes, I don't feel such an urgent need to do that at all. Because it's more solid within you, because you can mm-hmm. rest in it internally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being willing to join us again. My and um, I, uh, is it is it your intention to keep um, the luckiest club? functioning is it going to stay yeah. where it is grow is there those support yeah. groups are going to be out there for people yeah it's i've hired i don't run it anymore there's i have a ceo there's four full-time employees there's a bunch of amazing contractors who run meetings it's we're growing and thriving and um there's no intention to stop it and people can find out about that where at the luckiestclub.com and then your two books are still available. They're available everywhere you could buy a book. We are the luckiest and yeah. push off from here. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's delightful. Thank you for all the work you do you. and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, that was Dr. Tim interviewing Laura McGowan. And uh, so we're starting the second hour, just about 10 minutes early, and we welcome you to the show. This is Mind Shifters Radio, and our call-in number is 563-999-3581, and press 1. And that puts you into queue, and we are working, and it's awesome, and we're thankful. We hope you've had a good holiday season. And if you have anything that you would like to share or a question you would like to ask or a comment you would like to make, Press 1. If you're listening on a station where we can't see you on the switchboard, please dial 563-999-3581, and we will get you. So welcome, Michael. Thank you, dear heart, and welcome, everybody. I am also thankful that uh, that Blog Talk has fulfilled our goal of uh, getting us back online. And I'm appreciative of the service that they offer us, that, uh, that we can be in four different parts, four different corners of the earth and uh, come together, have a conversation, and within minutes have a recording that anybody can download, that anybody can listen to in the future that just sits there in our archives along with, I don't know, I think it's probably worth about 35 or 3,600 other recordings over the last 12 years, and we're heading into our 13th year. So appreciative of this technology and Appreciative of the source of this work, being this genius mind, Yeshua, 2,000 years ago, who really put together a, uh, a method of understanding how to heal the state of human life, how to bring us back into the truth of who we are. Deep, deep, deep appreciation for that and for the fact that... Uh, I happen to sort of fall into, uh, partially got pushed into, was inspired into working with the first century Aramaic language so that uh, 
with the background that I had, the electronics work I'd done, the physics, the business work, the uh, naturopathic medicine, that I had the brain cells to start to recognize, first of all, through the very um, poorly translated Greek um, shadow of the first century Aramaic scriptures, and then working with the Kaboris manuscript, having had the opportunity to go back into the first century meanings of the words from the Aramaic and bring them into a modern parlance that makes sense. Been, I've been synthesizing, in particular, the first century Aramaic work for, I'm not sure exactly, 44 or 45 years. Maybe a little bit longer than that. And as, as I've experienced several times over the decades, I feel like I'm finally coming into an understanding of it. <laughs> so deep appreciation for what Yeshua put together for the interactive audience that we have with this radio show and the opportunity to hone our understanding to build brain cells to begin to formulate a mental construct that is transferable to others as to the tools that give us the result of experiencing ourselves as human beings, knowing how this body-mind system, how the world works, and how to get on track for a human life. So delighted to have you with us. It's an honor truly to uh, to be able to share this work, to continue to share this conversation. And each person that has uh, a challenge, each person that has a question, each person that has a an interaction gives us a little more space to refine our understanding and our ability to make these tools available to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. So delighted that you're part of the conversation. Looking forward to how everything continues to unfold and the continued feedback from those who take hold of the tools really put them to work and question, question, question. It's interesting that um, many people look to someone who can give them the set of rules. In fact, it's interesting, you know, uh, you may not know this, but way back in the early days, as I was studying naturopathic medicine, I was also going to law school. I did three semesters and realized that was not for me and co-authored a course called Laws of Living, where we're looking at the real law and where you recognize that in the Aramaic, where the Greeks, you know, the gods want to control everything and everybody. There's no liberty. You do what you're told. 
you follow the law. Somebody lays down the rules. There's a superior and says, this is the only way to do it, and if you don't do it that way, you get punished. Now, sadly, when the Greeks translated the Aramaic, where there's nothing that even resembles that, in Aramaic, the word law simply means the way things work. And oftentimes, people who hear about laws of living, well, would you send me a copy of them? There's no copy of them. It's not a set of rules. And, and most people are looking for some authority outside themselves to give them the rules. What I've discovered, at least for me, is that I'm not interested in giving, giving anybody rules, but I am interested in handing people the tools for arriving at the knowledge, the awareness, and the liberty to interact consciously with the law, again, with how it works, understanding how each aspect of life works, how to remove the blocks, and how to stand truly in your own physiology as a human being, as the active presence of love that you were created to be. So in a nutshell, that's what we're here for and appreciate your participation. And unfortunately, we have been uh, blocked out of several shows over the last week or so. Our deep apology for that. Unfortunately, Blog Talk doesn't explain much to us as to what's been going on or why it's been going on, but uh, hopefully they've got it permanently fixed. It's been, it was out for a few days and then it was kind of wobbly for a couple of days. Uh, and we're hoping that it is truly taken care of so we don't have to have this conversation again. So, Ms. Jean, do we have anybody in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? No, it is all quiet out here. That's another thing, too, about not being on for so many days. And some people are like, okay, it's probably still not working, and you know, we may lose some of our audience by... By that happening, but we're glad the ones of you that are on the switchboard with us today that you tried again and that you're here. And, and uh, if you do pass have it a on in a question, yeah, press one. Let people know we're rocking. Maybe send a text out, Jeannie, to the folks that we've got uh, numbers for that just you know let them know we're back in the saddle again in this 54 degree day, Christmas or pardon me, New Year, Christmas Eve. I was so beautiful out. I was out uh, shirtless working in the garden. <laughs> We're just getting this wave of warmth. It's 54 degrees right now, although pretty rainy today. It's kind of breezy, so it's a little on the chilly side. But uh, Christmas or Christmas Eve was just, uh, I was out working and getting compost set up and mulching several thousand square feet of garden space. And so appreciating the weather, appreciating the fact that we get to have this conversation on a daily basis. And refine our understanding of these tools as we get to interact and share those tools with others. You know, one of the things that I'm really liking about this work as we've developed it is that the tools, if used, 
require no belief, just action. You take the tools and you put them into action. And the main tool that we'll you know, talk about is the tool of forgiveness, of course, which is a tool with which you remove content from your mind. Nothing whatsoever to do with the Greek idea of blame. The pain that's going on inside of me is all your fault, but it's okay, I'll forgive you, I'll let you off the hook. We're looking to turn that around 180 degrees. Oh, if I'm in pain, there's an energy in me that I need to be learning to remove from my structure. I need to learn to forgive. I need to learn to remove whatever belongs from within me because the only reason one ever has pain is because there's an energy within themselves that doesn't belong in the structure. So pain is a signal. It's a warning device that says there's something going on here that you need to be aware of. Sadly, most people live in total and complete denial. Thus begins the fall from grace. And what is denial? Denial is the belief, the thought, or the speaking that something outside of me is the cause of what's moving inside of me. When I live in denial, through my own denial, I force my mind to hide from me the energy with which I'm producing this disliked result. And as long as I hide it from myself in that dissociated state, it's not available to me. There is no possibility of me being able to repair it in that state. There's a password for everything that we hide from ourselves. And the password is forgiveness. There's a step-by-step worksheet process for how to collapse errant perception, drop directly into the root of the pain and the thousand different shades of pain that we can hold, delivering that root energy to the presence of active love in us, facilitating the presence of love meeting with or coming face-to-face with whatever has been hidden rather than keeping it hidden and making up stories about everybody else from that place, bringing the hidden part of our own minds forward into awareness, and the simple exposure of what it is that's causing our pain, what it is that we and perhaps many generations in our bloodline before us have been hiding from ourselves, bringing that forward in the presence of love means dissolution of what never belonged. And so that's what we're here to do. Delighted you're part of the conversation. If we can support you in any way, Push one, let's have, a, let's have a conversation about it. What's happening in your life? How are the tools moving for you? Anything that you care to share of appreciation for your 
holy day season? What's going on in your family? Maybe some of the shifts and changes you've seen with the work. Any plans for the new year? Aside from continuing with your healing work that have been facilitated through the work you've done with these tools. I was speaking with a gentleman yesterday who had sent me some messages of gratitude for what in many years of searching he had never been able to find anywhere else and was offering appreciation and acknowledgement for what I had done. And I had to um, push back a little bit on that, recognizing that this, the core of what we're doing here was not something that I created, that I made up. It comes straight out of the first century Aramaic teachings of Yeshua. The real work of healing, not churchianity's rules and regulations to try and control people, but rather the real down right where you live tools that Yeshua developed and the genius understanding of the human mind and its interaction with human physiology You know, when they said in the ancient Aramaic, the wages of sin is death, it sounds like it might be some sort of a sort of a theological threat, but in fact, he's just telling us how physiology works. The word sin in Aramaic, nothing to do with the Greek idea of something terrible, evil, awful, wicked, nasty you've done, but rather this, the word sin is an archery term. When you fired at the bullseye, the scorekeeper would yell sin if you missed the bullseye. So recognizing the word sin simply means off the mark. So when you put energies that are off the mark into your physiology, you create interference with physiology, and the result of that ultimately is death. And you hear them in the ancient scriptures saying, with man, death began. It's not natural for us to die. I would love to see dozens, hundreds, thousands, thousands of people who recognize that and, and get excited about doing the work that it takes to step away from whatever it is to heal, to forgive, to remove whatever it is that killed every ancestor in each of our bloodlines. My invitation is join me in that process. You know, structured within our genes is death. And it's only structured within our genes because some human instituted that energy pattern that resulted in their death. And since this multi-generational database called the body-mind unit registers everything that comes to it, what I know is that structured in your system as in mine 
are the energetic patterns that have killed everybody in our bloodline. Every person down through the ages has died as a result of engaging in energies that don't belong in the structure. Now, if one steps off a cliff and drops 2,000 feet, there's going to be quite an energy enter their structure that is sin, that is off the mark, that does not support life, and they're going to be dead. But a person is just as dead when they engage in energetic thinking of hate. It takes a little longer. It's not as immediate. But hate, fear, rage, guilt, grief are literal frequencies that are, are not supportive of the functioning of your human form, which is designed to incarnate and express love. So any energy that you put inside of your structure that does not support its full expression is in Aramaic sin, and the result is death. The person who takes cyanide poisoning takes, you know, ends up ingesting cyanide. That's sin. That's putting an energy in that doesn't support life in your structure. And the mental poisons that our culture presents to us and that people unknowingly engage in are just as toxic and just as deadly as cyanide. When you recognize that, then you become aware of the energetic patterns that you engage in in every arena of your life, whether it's the food you eat, the drinks you drink, the thoughts you think, the relationships you enter, and the way that you function in those relationships. The genius tool that Yeshua created for collapsing the end result, that is the product of engaging in energetic patterns that don't belong, especially on the mental and emotional level, the fact that he understood how to collapse the surface mind's result of engaging in energies that don't belong, so that when forgiveness, the tool, was engaged, it gave us direct access to the hidden part of our minds. You know, now, people are always in some kind of relationship with whatever sin, quote-unquote, sin energies they hold. So someone may experience a pain in a particular part of their bodies and not understanding that their bodies are in fact the repository of mind energy, is mind. If the mind of your knee is pained, it's because there's an energy in that tissue that doesn't belong there. If you do not do the work required to access and remove that energy, then that 
energetic pattern is going to contribute to your ultimate downfall. So the uh, the most what can I say the most dramatic appreciation that I can offer to Yeshua is for his understanding of forgiveness. That and you know I mean the lab today the cell biologist lab is proving what he taught how he knew 2,000 years ago that this was the truth, that this was the core way to heal? I don't know. If we listen to Bruce Lipton, cell biologist, he shows that when you think a thought, that thought produces a molecule called a neuropeptide, and that neuropeptide circulates around your structure until it finds a receptor site that matches it. And when it matches, when it finds that receptor site, that antenna, that's of the right frequency receptor, that neuropeptide, that thought, lands on the cell, inserts itself in the cell. If that energy is of a character that is off the mark or sin, then that cell is going to suffer. And if we are members of, which most people, my take is most people by the age of four, are card-carrying members of the one world universal religion of blame, Everything that's going on inside of them that's causing them pain is somebody else's fault and people hallucinate a whole world between their ears where they can assign blame for everything that's in them that is causing them pain to someone else. And by so doing, it seems like that's a way to get yourself off the hook, but the truth is that's simply a way to reinforce the dis-ease energies the energies that are off the mark that create disease, suffering, and death. We hear this man, Yeshua. You know, first of all, on, on one hand, we hear the scriptures talking about with man, death began. We made the process up. We're the ones who created the energies that are off the mark that destroy our tissue structure. And so we've, and we are the inheritors of a thousand generations of men and women who unknowingly did that behavior, engaged in, quote-unquote, sin. And every energetic pattern when triggered into activity from the past, triggered into activity today, will tend to incline us toward a certain form of behavior and a certain form of energetic motion or movement within our physiology. Most people have no idea what the source of their inclinations are because they are so steeped in this is somebody else's fault that they never are able to see the truth of themselves. They can only see their mind's twisted projections about how this energetic pattern is caused by that person and that one's caused by somebody else and, and this one is someone else's fault again seemingly never a moment where they can stop and go, hmm, 
I've been through this 87 different times with 42 different people. Maybe this is mine. Maybe I'm involved in my life. So when one lives in denial, one lives in a totally, completely false world, literally seeing things that aren't there. Now, someone might say, how could you possibly see things that aren't there? Well, has anybody ever accused you of saying something you've never said or doing something you've never done? Yeah, sure. So you want to know how it is that they could see you do something that you didn't do? All you have to do is trigger the brain cells in them for that particular behavior. And if they're not, and if that's locked in themselves with some measure of pain attached, then their denial, their lack of ownership of that energy, which is already within their structures, means that that energy will, will be used to build their brain's image of you. And that way, you show up with their problem attached, and they think it's really your problem. Have you ever had somebody accuse you, saying something you've never said, doing something you've never done? What state were they in when they accused you? Can you ever think of somebody accusing you of something you never said, something you never did, that they've got all this upset around? But... When it happened, they were in this state of love and joy and bliss and connectedness? No, when that person accused you, what was their state of mind? Some form of hostility or fear. Something unresolved in them, they put into their brain's image of you. And the genius of forgiveness is that Yeshua knew exactly how to collapse those projections so that we could retrieve what was underneath them and bring those parts of the mind to healing. And that's the single basic objective of this work is to support each person taking the level of responsibility that it takes to own whatever's moving within themselves. Learn how to collapse it. Learn how to communicate responsibly about it. And change the good old family feeling. Change the family dynamics of hostility and fear projected onto others. So in a nutshell, that's what we're here to do. And if you have a thought, a question, an answer for us, which one? Let's have a conversation about it. How can we support you? What's on your mind? You have a hand up. Oh, great. Let's say hello. It is Dan, area code 757. Hello. Welcome, good Welcome, good sir. How do you be? Hey, doing well. Good to hear y'all. Hey, um, good to be heard for at last after so many yeah. days of being out of commission. Uh, yeah, I was just... Um, you know, kind of stirred up this morning, and uh, but I was talking to Terry before this, and I and we were talking about, you know, for me, before I got into into recovery, 
in like 12 step recovery. I got involved in about 12, 12 years ago. And before that time, I had never even considered the possibility that the world I was looking at was not the world of actuality, that there was a difference between my perception and what's actually going on. That, that thought maybe it had occurred to me, but I would never seriously entertained it until I began to do some form of healing work. And the more right. I've done it, the more, the more it's like the issue is that I am not looking at actuality. I'm looking at my beliefs and my internal world when I have a perception. And that's like sort of the core realization. But I was talking to Terry about, you know, how many people, uh, live in a state where they, they have no question that everything they perceive is actual Outside and true <laughs> yep, yep. As, as they perceive it. And so that's just, I don't know, <clears throat> that came up for me. Well, when you look at the, uh, the whole mindset of the world, you know, in the, in the ancient scriptures, they talk about the mind of man compared to the alternate mind that was available to us, which they called, and there's nothing religious about it, which they called the mind of Christ. And the mind of man was the mind with all the problems. And the mind right. of man is the world of perception. And, I mean, go out and, and interview 500 people, and I guarantee you might find one one hundredth of one percent who might have ever conceived that they're the pictures painted on the inside of their eyeballs were not true about the outside world. Maybe you'll find that many. And then someone who's taken action on it, well, you know, one in a million. Do you think that number is going up of how many people are, are taking action towards healing and responsibility? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. When I go back, when I go back in the early days when I was traveling and I, I, we would be, you know, go from city to city to city. Basically, you know, for 40 years, I don't know if you know this, but I was on the road, and we would do an intensive season at Heartland in the summer. And then along September, October, we'd get on the road, and I'd spend a week in one city at a time, do about 30 to 40 weeks of uh, of workshops, and then be back at Heartland to do another season. And when I look back at the early days and how many people – would even tolerate a conversation, let alone actually engage in a conversation about maybe my perception is false. Maybe I could do something about it. I look at the early days, and most people looked at me like I was some kind of a wacko. Today, people might scratch their heads and say, oh, I don't know about that, but, but you can see the wheels turning when the idea is presented to them. But in the early days, and, and also, you know, the last few years of travel, you know, every little town, every little burg had its own alternate healing center. There was massage therapy. There were, there were people that were taking responsibility and doing their own healing work everywhere. We're in the early days, back 45 years ago, rarely saw anybody who was, could even engage in the conversation. So Good. So we're on a good trajectory. 
Yes, um, yes, I'm I'm holding the space that we're uh, we're getting closer and closer to critical mass, and uh, some people that uh, you know what I'd never expect to even entertain the conversation are going well. I don't agree with what you said, but tell me more. <laughs> what was that? You said? <laughs> That's awesome. So, so it's it's uh, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Feeling blessed by it all. Yeah. The, um, what? What? Uh, go ahead. No, I want to hear what you were going to say. Well, I was going to say what. What for you was the big kicker that moved you into this suspicion that maybe your perception wasn't. Uh, the end all and the be all. Um, doing the the twelve steps in NA. That was it. That was it. I mean, and you know, particularly the um, the fourth and the fifth step, and this the the fourth step, we made a searching, fearless, moral inventory of ourselves. Um, so. Looking at that before doing it, it sounds like I'm going to write down all the grimy stuff I think I did and and berate myself over how terrible I am. But what it actually comes out to is I'm writing down a catalog of my beliefs and the experiences and energies I hold within myself. And I had someone that really helped me to see that and then the process of sharing that the fifth step we admitted to God to ourselves another human being the exact nature of our wrongs our wrongs do not mean that I was such a bad boy and I need to be punished our wrongs mean that our we were admitting our perceptual errors and our off the mark energies and whatnot I'm tuning that a little bit to the like Aramaic language but I sort of got getting that um what I was taught is that these steps are a process of revising the beliefs and the narratives that we carry. And so that was a turning point for me of doing of, Oh, I'm, we're engaging in the work of revising the beliefs that we're carrying around. And early when I got into recovery, Terry introduced me to, to your work and the forgiveness healing process. And it sort of didn't exactly stick, but it's like, you know, and then I read the book when I was a few years in, and then for whatever reason it really came came time for me to do this version of healing uh, like six months ago. <clears throat> well, it's interesting that, um, and you may be aware of this piece of history of the A group, but it started out with a group called the Oxford Group. Mm-hmm. Year, I mean, I don't even know how many years ago. And that came out of the Aramaic. The original mm. 12-step work came out of the Aramaic uh, study of the scriptures. And what I hear you describing, you know, in, in the parlance of this language, what I hear you describing is a journey with, with the two steps you spoke about, is a journey from blockage of truth, where I've got everybody else to blame, to a place where one chooses to honor truth and takes responsibility for whatever energetic patterns they're engaging in, however the mind has misinterpreted it, and learn to bring the back the mind back into harmony with really honoring truth and wanting truth more than wanting to protect oneself and be right. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, the, uh, you know, truth is healing and... and cleansing and whatnot, and um, 
there's this idea, like in the NA book, it says everything we know is subject to revision, especially what we know about the truth. And I just think that's such a profound idea the, that it, yes. it just says that what I hold most deeply to be true, I might be wrong about it, and it's subject to need to be examined and revised. So I think that was what I first thought really scary and kind of more liberating. Well, back about um, probably 30 years, maybe a little bit more than that now, there was a play that I went to see one night at a theater in Boca Raton, Florida. I was living in Florida at the time. And there was a single line delivered in that play that for me was so powerful that I went out, the, the play was on its second to last night, there was one more performance the next night. I walked directly from watching the play to the box office and bought tickets for the next night to watch it yeah. again because of one line that had been delivered. The play was a live performance of what ultimately became the movie Mass Appeal. And if you're not familiar with it, it's a story about a a young man who's down in the 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 low end of town, like you know, the lowest of the low end, and he starts to work his way up to, you know, some sort of decency and he decides that what he wants to do is become a priest. So he gets into school, into a, a monastery, and this guy has been through it, so he has no qualms about stirring the pot. <laughs> you know, like, he'll he'll confront anything, anybody, and, you know, go for whatever it is, including the things that polite people wouldn't do. So this guy's in school, and... I mean, he's in everybody's face, you know, no idea of political correctness or the right or wrong things to say. He just gets in everybody's face. And so he stirs and stirs and stirs until the old Monsignor, who is over the uh, the monastery and the local churches, just gets tired of hearing about the crap this kid's stirring up. And one day he has a conversation with a local priest who is kind of he's, he's kind of getting to retirement age and and he's expressed his fear that uh if he ever offends the monsignor he might get sent off to the wheat fields of Kansas for his retirement <laughs> that's his that's his fear in life and the the monsignor you know just offhanded conversation you know, boy I'm getting rid of that kid his name was Mark Dolan in the play I'm going to get rid of that kid he's such a troublemaker and the old priest had actually watched this kid going for it and sort of admired him. And so he, in his trepidation, you know, speaks back to the Monsignor and says, well, you know, I've been, I've been watching that kid, and I think he's going to make a pretty good priest. So the Monsignor kind of gives him the look and says, well, okay, then you take him under your wing and you keep him out of my hair, and I'll let him stay. So the old priest kind of takes him on as a as a a student, and uh, and he one of the, one of the scenes he does is he's he's teaching about how to give a sermon, and 
you know, he says, you know, if if you get too close, you got to be careful about getting too close to people's issues because if you do your sermon, you get too close to people's issues, the collection will go down. So, like, you know, <laughs> be careful. And uh, and so it it's this kid Mark Dolan's turn to to do a Sunday sermon, so he gets up. And he goes for the juggler. You know, I mean, he's got everybody squirming in their seats. One of the things the old priest explains, well, you know, if people start shuffling their seats and coughing and blowing their noses, you know you're getting too close. Just flip into one of your stock sermons because we want the collection to stay up. So the kid's, you know, the kid's doing, delivering the sermon. And, I mean, the squirming, the coughing, all, you know, it's done with sound effects in the, in the live play. But all of that, you know, the, the, everybody is just stirred to the max. And, of course, the word gets back to the Monsignor. And the Monsignor's like, that's it. I've had enough. You're, he's out of here. And he tells the old priest, you know, he's, he's gone. But the old priest has been watching. He's like, he's admiring, you know, how this kid's going for truth. And um, and so he says, "Look, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the congregation and get them to talk to the Monsignor and make sure that you stay. I'm I'm gonna make sure you don't get kicked out." So he gets up to deliver his Sunday sermon the next Sunday, and as he's starting to talk about Mark Dolan and how he's gotten in their faces and such, all these earmarks show, you know, all the, the coughing and the sputtering and this blowing noses and all that, the shuffling. And you can just see him. It was actually, uh, well, in the movie, it was played by Jack Lemmon. Uh, I forget the name of the actor, famous actor, was in the play in Boca. But anyway, he plays it so well because as these earmarks start to show up, you can just see the stress build and his terror about being sent off to the wheat kilts of Kansas. And so he just flips into one of his stock sermons and leaves the, just leaves the conversation alone. And afterward, the kid's like, well, thanks a lot. I thought you were going to save me. And, you know, thanks, buddy. And it's like, well, you know. So the next week, the kid's got his bags packed. He's at the back of the church. The old priest gets up to his sermon. And, of course, he's doing a stock sermon. He's not touching this issue. But as he's getting close to the end of the sermon, the kid's picking up his bags and getting ready to leave. You know, he's, he's out. And once again, you can see the, the pressure build on the old priest, and he finally cracks, and he just blasts the whole congregation like, you know, this kid needs to stay. And, you know, and, and as he finally tells the whole truth about what's going on for him, there's this space of silence, and then he delivers the line, now that the truth has been told, there's room for real love. Mm-hmm. And until we tell, you know, what, what clicked for me is the realization that until we tell the truth, we're functioning out of something false and phony, and there is no presence of human life in that. There is no actual love available until the truth is told. And of course, that's one of the, I think one of the powers of the fifth step is I've admitted to another person the nature of my wrongs. I've, I've told the truth and the accompaniment of truth is literally the active presence of love and that's where the real core of healing comes from. Right. It's like and, coming to another dimension. Yeah. And I can remember when they came out with the movie with Jack Lemmon, and it's like, oh, man, I'll be able to go see that line delivered anytime. 
<laughs> and I, w- I went opening n- night to the uh, to the theater to watch that movie, and they changed the line. It was no longer now that the truth has been told. There's room for real love. I guess it was too powerful for public media. I don't know. Actually, Jeannie and I, I forget where we were, somewhere up in the northeast, if I remember correctly, and, and the play live play was playing, and we went to the Playhouse to watch it. You know, we bought tickets. It was one of the cities we were in while we were on the road, and we went to see it, and they had changed the line again. It wasn't in the live play anymore, at least that particular version of it. But it's a powerful insight that when the truth is there, then... There's there's an opening for actual love to show up the actual presence of our human lives and there's the most powerful space on earth is right there. Yeah. So That's glad it. to be joining you on the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Sweet. Well, any other thoughts for you today? Questions, answers, anything to share? Oh, man. I mean, I've just been ultra stirred up just doing my work. And, you know, I've got a compilation of like 10 different mind shifters to work on. So that's, <laughs> you know, you've given me a couple and then I came up with a few and, and that I'd shared with you. And uh, right. saw my family yesterday and it, I was doing a mind shifter relating to more to my mother, but the contents that were coming out were related to other people and it was this morning so I don't know maybe that's what I actually needed to talk about but I avoided <laughs> mm. well I I like the mind shifters that you had sent me that you came up with and that's one of the skills that we uh, were working to help people to build the brain cells to do to design the mind shift that you know is going to show you the deepest parts of your own unconscious mind and allow it to surface. So yeah, they, they were uh, you were right on track with those. It's like, oh, you got the knack of creating mind shifters. That's awesome. Yeah, like three or four of them just popped up for me. And the one I did, yeah. the one I did with this is the one you gave me is it is safe, healing, and enjoyable for me to let my guard down around women like mother. So I did. I and what happened with one. your breath as you wrote that one? I've been pretty decent at um, staying with the breath awesome. while I go through. Um, what was weird about that one for me is that, so yesterday I worked a shift for extra money, and then after that, and my family's Jewish, so we don't really do much with Christmas, but um, I went to see my mom and dad and sister and my sister's boyfriend, and I was just right. so stirred up and irritated with them and all my stuff was coming up. And then when I did the mind shifter this morning, I thought it would be more about my mom or how women aren't safe to approach. But it was really more about um, I was irritated with my sister and her boyfriend, and most of it was about uh, my irritation with with men that I perceive as uh, childish and immature. So... Not sure what that's about, but I'm just letting it be stirred up and continuing on. Mm-hmm. So my my the one offering I would give you is to look at the way you're languaging that, you know, well, that when I, you know, they stirred me up. Remember, the mm-hmm. definition of denial is when I think or speak as though something outside of me 
is the cause of what's moving inside of me. And when I recognize that as opposed to there's a cause-effect link between what they do and what's moving in me, to recognize that the, the only cause for the fact that this is moving in me is the fact that it's in me, and here's somebody who's given me this awesome gift to get to look at that part of my own mind. Yeah. So I've got. So it sounds. <laughs> yeah, it sounds sounds like your uh, your sister and your uh, her significant other are are a, a powerful gift for you. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Dubious honor, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. Well, I really appreciate the integrity of your work and the way you're going for it. It's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing Jeannie and doing some, you know, work in person. That'll be awesome. I'm a little scared, but excited. Cool. Well, well, you're on the calendar for next week. We'll look forward to it. Sweet. Me too. All right. Any other thoughts for today? No, I think we'll leave it there, and uh, I'll be talking to you soon. All right, sir. Blessings. And uh, and wishes for the best year yet of your eternal life. Awesome. Thank Coming you. Coming up. Yeah. All yeah. right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. We have another hand up. I believe it's Miss Susan, 610. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Um, Welcome. Merry Christmas. Thank you. You too. I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, visiting my daughter and her two of her boys and her husband. And oh, sweet. so I've been on. Yeah, it's great. Um, no need for a mind changer. It's been heaven. <laughs> so maybe I should uh, great. Do Did you fly it, down? You know. Yeah. Did you fly yeah. down? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we did. One thing they do every year that was really a mind blower, and you were talking about how has the work. Uh, how the work has become more absorbed into the general population, and you can see the difference. We, right. my daughter, has had a had a tradition in her family of watching "It's a Wonderful Life" with James Stewart. You probably know the movie; it's old and famous. You know. Oh it? yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we didn't see the beginning of it, but it doesn't matter because when we got in, we all remembered it, but here's James Stewart who loses $8,000 and goes into a total twit and is nasty to everybody in his family and, you know, goes on this rampage. And my first thought is, God, he doesn't know anything about the tools. <laughs> and then I thought, he wouldn't, <laughs> that, that movie is outdated in that sense. He was acting like a child. He was just flailing around and relief came when... He, all his friends, and that's a beautiful message, your life impacts people in ways you have no idea. Let's have a look at what your life would be like, what the world would be like if you had never lived. And you get a vignette of a lot of lives that went south because he hadn't been around to be the person that he was. But then again, in the re- he comes back to his real life and all this money is gathered by his friends and he gets his well over $8,000, so he feels good again. And I thought to myself, well, he hasn't done the work. He got, a, he got relief, but he didn't do the work. <laughs> so you're talking, yes, it's, it's a very different world now. And I hadn't really yeah. thought about 
it was an illustration of how much has changed. So, good going, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. You'd be, yeah, it is very cool. So we're down here, and Luke has spent a lot of time with us, and he's he's sponsoring several people who want to get sober, and he's running AA groups, and he's talking about many things that are like, I'm so interested that you said on this show just now that the Oxford group is really based and founded on the Aramaic forgiveness, and because Luke is doing it, and it's great to see that connection. I told him that you asked after him every once in a while, and he said, oh, what a good guy he is. <laughs> so you have a fan. So um, Jacob has gone to Colombia five flights he had to get on and off of to get to his father's, and he's made it down there, and we don't know how that's going, but if you want to hold the space for somebody who's facing his father after many years of not having been with him and has built up uh, thoughts about his father and impressions about his father that may or may not be true, it's he's, he's sort of on the hot seat down there. Um, well, I'll join you in holding the space for... Uh... Jacob for his process for what he goes through in in this visit yeah thanks so and I had a question you were and this is just how can you know this but you say if we had if our hearts were right and if we'd been practicing true forgiveness we would never we wouldn't even die our DNA wouldn't have that built in and then I think <laughs> I want to get all practical and say overpopulation what are we going to do none of us is dying and we're hanging around forever and the earth is bursting with retired old codgers who need to be taken care of by their other people and of course you can't answer that but anyway yes i can so I, I have an answer for that oh you know? I have an answer okay. for that. we we even have an we even have an app for that okay well first of all would there be old codgers dying that need to be taken care of if we actually handled that which kills us? No. Yeah. Okay. What, what do you, so, so I'd answer the question with another question, and my question would be, what do you suppose the world would be like if from day one, when we came into the world as active present love, there was only support for functioning as active present love, and we lived out of the genius mind of Christ in us rather than the carbon-based memory replicate mind that plays out the same old crap over and over and over again and ultimately kills us. What do you suppose the world might look like if tomorrow morning literally 7.5 billion people woke up with the genius mind of Christ awakened them, looked at each other and said, what are we going to do today? Mm-hmm. Like, can we think, you know, you've been around, you and I have been around long enough. Think back when you were a kid, what, say, for instance, transportation, a trip to Columbia would have looked like, a trip to Florida, what that would have looked like when you were five years of age compared to mm-hmm. today. Like, there's no comparison whatsoever. My offering would be that is a minuscule shift compared to what it will be like when 7.5 billion people wake up 
every morning knowing who they are as love and living out of that state of being. Like we're not even going to recognize what the whole game, it, it'll be so different that, You mean well, only only then would we know what to do with overpopulation the need well there wouldn't be solution. such a thing there wouldn't be a, such a thing as overpopulation because you know if you look at that as like for instance I know like we're doing some gardening here and we're starting to grow more of our own food and but there are people who are who've really made it their purpose to do advanced growing systems and they're literally multi-story buildings in some cities that are all made with glass and reflective light and they're growing mountains of food in this building that others otherwise would take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres to grow. Mm-hmm. So if in mm-hmm. fact we all functioned as creative human beings, really truly fulfilling our purpose, the production of food, and, and I mean real actual food rather than the garbage that the hostility and fear-based world generates in order to keep people anesthetized against their pain, that would be totally and completely changed. It wouldn't surprise me if a moon, a journey to the moon would be just an afternoon stroll if if we'd been living as human beings for, let's just say, the last 2,000 years, if everyone had been living as human beings, I think the creativity, the moon, you know, maybe several other planets in the solar system or maybe even further would be quite inhabitable. And the creative genius mm-hmm. that it would take to do whatever it is to, to solve the things that look like problems mm-hmm. now because we're functioning as chronic I'm not even sure what word to use. I'm going to say morons, chronically functioning as, <laughs> as hostility and as hostility and fear-based non-beings. Yeah. Like we've created a lot of crazy stuff that wouldn't even be a a thought, wouldn't even be a factor. Yeah, in a way, I can't. So that ask would be my question. take. Yeah, well, that's a good. That's as good of an answer as I could get, knowing that we can't imagine at this point or picture what it would be like if it were, if that were the truth and the way of things. That's as good of an answer as I, I'm satisfied with that answer. Good. Yeah, because I'll, I'll go for the, the fear questions, you know, like how are we, who's going to take care of all these people in wheelchairs everywhere, gazillions <laughs> of them. It won't be like that. Okay. It'd be a whole different game for sure. Yeah. Well, please tell everybody there uh, that we send our love for your gathering. And uh, mm. I, I was asking if you were flying because I had this sneaking suspicion maybe you drove down there and on your drive back we'd be able to connect on your way through because you'd oh, kind of have to just about pass our door but yeah it oh, no. would. wouldn't that be fun would. that would be so be great yeah no we we left our michael in charge of animals and uh he's got the house to himself and he was very sad because he doesn't get to have christmas because he has he has family but he won't tell us who they are and he's not communicating with them and 
the fact that he now says, nobody gets me, nobody gets me, and he's on the spectrum and Jacob says the same thing, um, somehow something has become much easier being with Michael because I think this might be just the fact that we really didn't get him and we expected him to get us uh, Mm. and he doesn't get get us either, but he has been in extremis and what he really wants is to be taken care of and to just be able to be a hermit unless he plays his guitar and sings, in which case he morphs into this gregarious, outgoing, talented man. Uh, right. Tim's been taking him to his gigs just one a week at old people's homes, but they adore him. It's a memory care center, and they sing all the old songs. It's like their memories come back because they're songs, right. and songs sit in a different part of the brain. Yep. So he's, yep. he's, he's like, you know, he, they adore him. So if, he said, boy, if I could get a few more old people's homes, I'd be, I'd be in business. Well, he'd have to have quite a few to be in business, but still. Um, anyway, he's, he's up there, and I've got his application for a housing, HUD housing down here, and my daughter is going to take me over tomorrow afternoon where they reopen and talk to the manager of it and go over his entire application, make sure everything is exactly as it should be, then put it in, and he'll be on that wait list for nine months to a year and a half or so. Um, and, and, and perhaps he would walk, and perhaps he'd and, get us get a room. And and perhaps one of the things he would do would be partly earn his way there with his music. It'd be a, a venue for him to play regularly. Say that a different way. You mean on his way down to stop and do gigs, or? No, no. I mean his exchange, his payment for a space in a retirement home or a memory care unit could be his music. That might be the place where you know he could oh, be living where he's about flourishing. That. Yeah. That's a great idea, except he has just completely turned those down. He said he won't do that. We have gone to both places and talked to the owners. Even with their base rent, the lowest they can go is about 1200 a month, which is way beyond. They don't, they don't right. make it. Even if he said he'd play music, they just don't want to do it, basically. They don't want to do no. it, and Michael doesn't like living with a bunch of people with no no memories. That scares him. He's got a good mind yet. So I think this HUD housing where he'd have a small apartment or an efficiency and he'd, if he gets what my daughter thinks he will get, he'll be right on the river in Jacksonville and be, be able to walk in the parks and there everything nice. is walking, walking distance so he won't even need a car. And Minimal winter. Can be Minimal winter. Boy, it's impressive, though, how many people have set up tents around the city. You see homeless people in little hovels here and there and, and because it's warm. They can survive down yep. here. And it's, a, yeah. it's amazing. So I don't want him to have to be homeless again, but he's probably never going to have a car again. And now he's beginning to admit that at age 68, living out of your car might not be a great idea. Pretty rough. You know, he, yeah. 
so anyway, that's the plan. I've told him that if he should get housing down here, we'll pack him into a U-Haul and send him down here, and they'll meet him down here and help him set himself up, and then we can visit him when we come down here. But he'll gradually get another family, because he's right there, and they have tons of programs. He doesn't have to go to church, but they have concerts and music programs and art exhibits, and whether he would go to any of that remains to be seen, possibly not. But anyway, so that's... Join you in holding the space for him. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. He's blessed that he's attracted you you guys into his life. That's uh, that's pretty pretty sweet. Well, it's been a two-way street. Uh, you know, people say, aren't you great to do that? And I say, hey, wait a minute now. <laughs> if you only knew the rocky road we have gone on to to have the right mind to be able to do this. We weren't very good customers. Uh, you know, we, we had our stories. And if I told them you a brought certain you way, several I'd have gifts. lots of sympathy. Say that again? I say he brought you lots of gifts, too. He did. He did. Opportunities. He did. Yep. Yep. And yep. you were gracious enough to receive them and, and do something about it. So that's to your credit. You hear that? Geese yes. coming in. Their bellies are skimming the water. They're going in like like water skiing now. Now oh, they've just gotten <laughs> onto the water. It's so great. The wildlife here, little geckos running around, bugs I haven't seen, oh, birds, funny bird songs. Anyway, my daughter wants us to be careful. Be careful of the palmetto bugs. Oh, they're You know, big. in Florida, they weigh... They weigh 500 pounds, they fly, and they carry machine guns. (laughs) It almost feels like that. (laughs) Some of them. Yeah, I know. I used to live in South Florida. I remember them. They're like, one of those things would be flying and hitching. It's like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah. You know, if you call them cucarachas, you feel a lot more friendly toward them. (laughs) You can even (laughs) sing a song with them, eh? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Cool. Well, anyway... Um, well, oh, tell the family that I too. said hello and send my love with that. I will. I was just going to say, I've got to get off, and I looked at the clock. You do, too. So, yeah. My it's family getting is to be about that time, to materialize so. again. So, All right. Have fun. To talk. Safe travels. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Blessings. Talk Appreciate you. Best for Christmas and the New Year. Thanks, Michael. You, too, and Jimmy. All right. Lots of love. All right. Yeah. Appreciate Bye. it. Bye-bye. Well, we're down to the last minute or so, so I'm just going to say thank you for joining us. We are, by the way, on the first, uh, the 15th, pardon me, of January, uh, going to begin working with the book Enlightenment, what we've published so far from the Kabor's manuscript. And uh, if you'd like to get a copy of that to be able to follow along with this, it's a, a three-part text where there's an introduction tells you a little bit about how the manuscript was found in the Aramaic language. There are some key passages from the New Testament that are left with the key words in brackets in Aramaic. And then there's a first century dictionary, dictionary in the back, so you can start looking up the, the first century meanings of those words. A, a group of 25 different uh, of, the, of the top Aramises in the world really worked for a long time diligently working to establish the first century meaning of those Aramaic words. And so you can do your own translation with it, and we'll be working with that starting January 15th. 
the uh, the book normally sells for twenty five dollars, and then there's a shipping. You know, the, if you order it on the website, it um, it adds shipping of nine dollars. Uh, but what we're doing for anybody who wants to have the book to work along with this with the radio show is if you just go to our website, go to whyagain.org, there's a donate button. And just if you would, the book's twenty five plus a dollar if you make it if you donate twenty six dollars and give us your name and that it's for the Enlightenment book and your address, we'll get it shipped out to you. So all you need to do is make that $26 donation, put in your the note that it's in, in the notes when you make the donation that it's for enlightenment and uh, uh, your address, and we'll get it shipped off. So in the meantime, have the best year yet of your eternal life. Thanks for joining us. Blessings. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.